The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 102. Due to deforestation, it's estimated we are making more than 137 species extinct every day. Ooh, that's a sobering thought. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and whether this is your first time listening or you were listening way back in the beginning, even before my own mother was listening, I want to say thank you today for tuning in and making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And no matter how many times you've listened, you're in luck today because we've got a great guest for you, someone whose story has fascinated me for the past five years, ever since I read his book for the first time, and who is one of the premier writers in America, David Grand, New York Times bestselling author of The Lost City of Z and The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, and also staff writer at The New Yorker. David, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And David, I'm a huge fan of your books, and The Lost City of Z is still one of my favorite travel books out there. So a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't listened to our podcast of our favorite travel books. Now you know one of them that is on the list. So I definitely want to delve into that story and the decision to go on that adventure and all the obstacles you faced, everything you saw, everything that is encapsulated in that book. But before we get into that, I want to talk to you a little bit about being a writer, because we've had a lot of guests on the show who have written books, some of them very successful books. But everyone, with the exception of A.J. Jacobs, didn't start out as a writer. They were an adventurer who wrote books about their experience or a blogger who turned their message into a book and so on and so forth. But you are and always have been a writer and a journalist. Did you know that you wanted to be a writer? And can you kind of walk us through your career path a little bit? Yeah, well, I, um, I had a, a very uh, circuitous path to becoming a writer but the impetus to write and the desire to write was kind of the one steady was always there. But like so many people, you know, when I was in college, I became, that was really when I became interested in writing, but I didn't know what form it would take. And like most people, you're like, how do you make a living as a writer? Right. The big question. (laughs) Right. I mean, what do you do? And I did many different things, trying different things I uh, to support myself along the way. I was a school teacher. I taught seventh and eighth grade. I uh, lived in Mexico uh, on a research fellowship. And uh, during that time was really when I filed my first journalistic stories. There was a, a little magazine that no longer exists. It was put out by a few Americans who were living there. It was part of La Jornada newspaper, which is a large newspaper in, in Mexico. And when I went there to do a fellowship uh, unrelated to journalism, I was based in, um, in Puebla, Mexico. And I met uh, these journalists and I asked them if they would mind if I brought them any stories. And they said, sure, you know, we'll take a look at them uh, on spec. And so I wrote a couple pieces. Um, I had a little typewriter and I would, um, back then there was no internet. I didn't even have telegrams or something, so no fax machine. So I would get on a bus 
and I would ride the bus with my type copy marked up because, you know, you didn't have a computer where you could clean it up. And I would ride the bus. Uh, I don't remember how many hours it was, but maybe three or four, maybe more than that uh, from where I was coming from. And then um, I would deliver it to their office and they would look at it and then they would, if they liked it, they would pay me. And um, usually it was just enough uh, money to cover my bus fare back. So uh, that was kind of the beginning, and then and I did kind of things like that all along, uh, trying to to find find ways. And um, I'd say my first uh, kind of permanent uh, gig was as a newspaper writer for a new newspaper called the Hill Newspaper, covering Capitol Hill. And when I got there, there were no desks. It was a startup. Uh, there were no computers, which is probably why they hired me. You know, I probably wouldn't have got a job anywhere else. And I started as a copy editor, and and in those great virtues of. Um, of, of tumult of startups, you know, I think in 10 months, it's probably the rapidest rise. I went from being a copy editor to a senior editor, executive editor of the, of the newspaper in about, in about 10 months. But, uh, and that really began it. Although, of course, that marked me for a long time uh, as a uh, political writer, which was not something I had really any aspiration to be. It was just where I got a job. I was interested, but, um, and then I spent, you know, many years trying to figure out and kind of evolve as a narrative writer, trying to find more literary stories and, and travel stories and eccentric stories. And, uh, but that also was a circuitous pass, and that took many years of kind of evolution, both for me to understand kind of what I wanted to do and how to do it, and then find someone who will pay me to do it. <laughs> so moral of the story, it's really easy to become a writer, right? Yeah, exactly. The more the story is, don't, don't become a, as my mother used to say, don't become a writer. Don't become a writer, whatever you do. She was an editor. Don't become a writer. <laughs> and so after this political writing, and, and you kind of mentioned you wanted to do some travel stories, you wanted to do these kind of eccentric stories. Did you envision that you would be writing for magazines, for newspapers? Did you want to write novels? Or were you kind of just after anything that would give you freedom to write more things that you wanted to write? When I first started writing, I had some aspirations of being a novelist. And then I quickly realized, in fact, when I was in Mexico, I wrote a novel that thankfully will never see the light of day. It's just a dreadful piece of work. Um, I think it still exists in a box somewhere. Hopefully um, the rats have gone to it by now. But I also realized I was really bad at that. I really was. I I just, my imagination was limited and I, I just wasn't very good at it. So then I kind of went into newspaper work and and I had never studied journalism. And so I kind of missed all those courses where people told you, well, you know, people use literary techniques to tell stories and like, look, read Gay Talese and look, here's Tom Wolfe. And actually, you know, people have been telling stories with journalism for a long time. And I, I, I kind of missed that. I had to kind of discover that along the way. And then, of course, I found those books and Joseph Mitchell. And you're just like, oh, my God, wow, these stories are just incredible. They're as beautiful as any short stories I've read. And even that was kind of an evolutionary process. Um, at a certain point, something clicked. I guess there was a specific moment. I guess everyone has an origin story, right? So uh, my origin story would be I was at the New Republic magazine. I got from the Hill newspaper to the New Republic. And um, I was researching a story about a congressman who has since died, the honorable gentleman from Ohio, who was named James Trafficking. Some people may remember him as the person would stand on the House floor and say, beam me up. He had that very flamboyant toupee, although we never knew it was a toupee until he finally went to jail and they removed it and we discovered he was bald underneath. I was doing a story about him and, and his ties, alleged ties, uh, well, they weren't so alleged, uh, to mobsters uh, in Ohio. 
and how he had this kind of hidden past that was just kind of extraordinary. And, and I went to an Ohio courthouse when I was doing the research and I found um, some old transcripts of a wiretap in which he was on this wiretap talking to Orly and Lenny the Crab. Uh, Orly and Lenny the Crab were two brother mobsters. And the language on that wiretap was so visceral and so real and so at odds with everything one heard the way he spoke in Washington and the way so many people spoke. And I was suddenly led into this kind of inner world and, and, and this inner voice. And that was what I wanted to capture was that kind of authenticity, that, that human character that we kind of hide beneath the veneer. And, and that's what I wanted to get to, which was so at odds with so much. If you watch C-SPAN, the way, you know, they just speak in, in almost these, these consultant tested, vague bromides. And, and so there was something in reading that document that really made something kind of go off a little bit. And I said, you know, I want to try to capture that kind of dialogue between human beings. And I want to figure out a way to report to get at that, uh, which isn't always on the surface, right? I don't have wiretaps, so it's not always on the surface. Uh, so you have, but how do you get at that? How do you get behind what you see uh, and the veneer of things and get to real people's inner souls? And is that then what led you to the long form type stuff? That really led me to the long form stuff. And, and again, trying to figure it out. I mean, it was again a process, um, you know, with a lot of, a lot of misfires and not su- always successful pieces and kind of learning how to do it. And I do believe, I really do believe this that, you know, journalism and even literary journalism is a craft and that, you know, there are certain people who have gifts beyond gifts. I mean, you know, uh, John Updike, I mean, just has a gift for metaphors and language that is, he also worked at his craft incredibly diligently hard and would have been as good, but he was, he had a gift. And there are certain people who are journalists who also have gifts, but I, I, I still think that journalism in particular, unlike fiction is a craft that, that really through diligence can be learned and, and improved upon. I'll never be able to write like John Updike, but the, the craft of telling a story and how to report and how to get the information, you know, I get, I feel like I get better and, and at, and, and the nice thing, you know, it's not like being an athlete where hopefully the skills don't diminish at, at your prime. They actually, you know, you hit 40 and you start to say, Hey, I kind of think I'm figuring this stuff out finally, you know? So, so I, I look at the, look at the process of writing as something to be honed and all along, everything was kind of a new challenge. And even now, you know, I've been doing this, uh, I'm getting old, so I've been doing this a long time now. And so, but even now it's, it's important for me when I'm working on a story or choosing a story to find something ambitious that will push me, that will, that will test me so that it doesn't become rote. Um, that's what you don't want. Journalism has many forms and they're almost, some of them are conceits and you want to both learn them, but then also figure out your ways around them. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I think I resonate with your stuff that you write so much is because you're always jumping from topic to topic and taking on something that interests you. Like you said, kind of pulling away the veil, not going for these easy, okay, I'm going to write this type of story because I've done it before. I can probably plug it in and, you know, change a few things and do it, but that you're really going after topics and, and interesting things that people might not have written about before and you might not even know what you're going to write about or how it's going to flesh out. It's not something similar to what you've written before. How much freedom are you given as a writer? And and how do you find these subjects for your articles? Is it organically? Do, do people give you a lot of tips? Or is it just things that you see and you think, 
oh my gosh, this is something that's really cool that I'm interested in. I think other people are going to be interested in it. Yeah. In terms of the, I'll do, I'll do the questions in order. The first question in terms of how much freedom, I would say I have a lot more freedom now than I did for most of my career. I mean, uh, when I was at the New Republic and I started to get interested in these stories, there was, there was kind of an unspoken, what I would call three to one rule, which is I would give them three of what they wanted. They would give me one of what I wanted. So I would go cover the Hillary campaign and do three stories on the Hillary campaign. And then they would let me go do a trafficking or a, you know, a basketball player who washed out of the NBA or, or mobsters or con men or whatnot. And now, you know, I get a little bit more latitude. I've been doing it long enough and people, you know, can see that, that the stories will hopefully be rewarding enough to, to justify them. I put a lot of myself into my stories. They take a lot of time. And so one of the most important things for me, I, I was never a good hack because I'm just too slow. I'm too, I'm too slow. I mean, nothing, it doesn't come easy to me. I mean, it, it does not, I know people who comes easy. It doesn't come easy to me. Now I, I don't think there's some virtue in the suffering or anything like that, but it just doesn't come easy to me. So for me to embark on something, it's going to be, a better story, which I think editors started to realize with me, it will be a better story is if I'm just somehow enraptured by it. I'm somehow, something has just caught my curiosity and I'm intrigued by it. Most of the stories I write about, I don't know anything about before I start. Uh, you know, I have almost, I often start from, there's almost zero background. You know, I'm at sea, but there's something about it that I'm just really curious about and really intrigued by and that gets hold of me. And that, that's so important in the way I choose stories because, you know, I'll, I'll spend anywhere from three months and I've done investigative stories for a year and I've done books that will take me, you know, three years. I'm in the midst of closing in on a three-year project right now for a book. And so passion is really important uh, for me. And so I'm pretty careful in how I choose stories. And I, there's really no great secret to that. I would say I read a lot of newspapers and usually the most enticing, intriguing stories I, I are often little briefs in regional newspapers, uh, often just two or three sentences, that there's just something in the weird mix of words that are kind of alluring, uh, be specific. An example would be, I did a story about the Aryan Brotherhood, which is a, the most kind of murderous prison gang in the United States, which had taken over the prison system. And there was just a two-sentence brief about how a bunch of prisoners were arrested in prison for being part of this gang. And the thing that caught my attention there was just like arrested in prison. Like, wait, you're already in prison and you're arrested for murder while in prison. And there was just something about that, that I just thought that's just kind of strange. And, and how does that even work? And so then I started to just ask questions that even though we knew prison gangs existed, like, how do they actually operate? Like if you're in a prison, like how do you even get money? Like how, how does just, what is the forensics? How do you build an empire in a prison? And I don't, I didn't feel like I'd ever read that story. I've read things about prison gangs and violence, but I don't feel like I'd ever read just the kind of like, if you were building a dam, how do you build a prison gang? And how does it exist? How does it, how does it operate to the point that you have to arrest these people in prison? That's the kind of thing that entices me. And, and that, that gets me going. Um, I keep a notebook and if I hear something alluring, I'll, I'll jot it down. Uh, an example, another example of that where it didn't come from a story where it came from a friend. He made an offhanded joke about the giant squid. And he said, ah, it's like the giant squid. Nobody's ever been able to find that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, no, no one's ever been able to find the giant squid. This was back in 2003. And at that time, nobody had ever seen 
a live giant squid. They knew they existed because dead ones had been found floating on the surface and they had, you know, eyes as big as, uh, you know, these uh, basically tires on a bus and they're about as long as a bus when their tentacles were stretched. And I thought, God, that's kind of crazy. Here's this. I looked it up and it's sure enough, it was true. Here were these incredibly bizarre animals that were just huge had these incredible eyes and you no one had seen them. And I thought, well, that's a great story. But then even like the prison gang, you then go through another process, which is like, okay, that's a great story, but there's nothing to see. How do you even tell that story? So usually when I get intrigued by something, then I kind of go through a secondary process. So with the giant squid, I was like, I looked it up. I was like, kind of a dead story, a dead species, dead story. How would I ever tell it? But then I found out there were these giant squid hunters who were like Ahab, who had spent their lives trying to become the first, you know, like to get the Mount Everest top to, to find the giant squid. And so that got me excited. And so then I went through a third process where I said, well, I started to call all these guys and uh, most of them were men and, and, and although not all and figure out who had, who was kind of doing the most interesting thing. And then also a practical question, who's going out on an expedition, right? Cause I, I don't want to recreate. I want to go and I want to see these people in action because going back to that point about getting to authenticity, people tell self narratives. And so when you just at, interview somebody, you get a different story than if you witness it. Uh, we all do that. And and so there's just a visceralness to seeing something. So I found a guy in, in New Zealand who um, who was going out on a, on a giant squid expedition, uh, Steve O'Shea. And Steve O'Shea's plan was everyone had different plans to catch a giant squid. Some wanted to put cameras on wheels that would sperm wheels would battle with giant squid. Maybe they would lead them. People had gone down in cages. His plan was he was going to catch the baby and try to grow it in captivity. This had a certain brilliance to it because, like other species, uh, the giant squid hatched lots of babies. Only a few survived, but if you got in the spawning area, there should be a fair amount of them. They wouldn't swim as quickly. Now, uh, that had a drawback, which is um, – this is probably too long a story for our podcast, but it had a drawback, which is that um, if you've ever been to an aquarium, you've never actually seen a squid. Because if you put a squid in a tank, they all commit suicide. They basically eat each other. They cannibalize each other or they just run into the to the glass. So he had devised a special tank. And he, in fact, kept squid alive longer than anyone. He had a record going of, you know, over 100 days. And so he said, come on out, mate, and we'll make history. I got out to uh, New Zealand, and I imagine we were going to go on a, a Jacques Cousteau expedition. And this is the thing on these stories. You, you really never know exactly what you're going to find or where they're going to go. So I went into my editor, uh, David Remnick at The New Yorker, and my editor, Daniel Zaleski, and I said, look, I got a great story. We're going to go find the baby giants. We're going to catch it. We're going to make history. No one's ever done this before. And I made that uh, sin that many reporters who are overexcited do, which is like oversell a story. So I oversold the story and said, you know, we're going to make history. So off I went to New Zealand expecting a Jack Cousteau expedition. When I got there, he just basically had a little skiff and uh, he just had one uh, member of his team, which was a grad student who got seasick. And then he said to me, he said, uh, I'm so, he had basically bankrupted himself uh, looking for the giant squid. And then he said to me, uh, uh, mate, I should warn you now, there's a little bit of uh, a wee bit of a uh, cyclone coming our way. And I said, well, that's not a problem. We'll just wait a few days. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. You, we can't wait because the giant squid only spawn during this part of the season. If we don't go now, I have to wait a year. So lo and behold, I set out with this, this man in his little skiff to, uh, in the middle of a hurricane to find the baby giant squid. <laughs> and both of those stories that you kind of mentioned there, the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang and the giant squid are part of The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, which is your, your second book, which is an anthology of, of stories that you've written for magazines. 
that's correct. Yeah, it's a collection of the, well, my stories from uh, mostly from the New Yorker, a few from uh, the Times Magazine, and it also has the story in there of the mobster of uh, James Traficant, the congressman, and his ties to the mob in Ohio. And so, one of the interesting things about your story is that you, you know, self-confessed you're not an adventurer. You're not someone, as we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, who's an adventurer and then has written a book. You are a writer, but you find yourself and you or you put yourself in these positions to do crazy things like go out on a skiff in the middle of a cyclone searching for a giant squid or look for the lost city of Z. You know, what makes you decide to do these things? Is it the story? Is it the adventure? Is it all of that combined? Because a lot of people might say, ah, cool story, but, you know, I'm not going to put myself in harm's way. Or do you not even really care? There's probably some deep uh, psychiatric diagnosis um, that I'm not aware of yet, but that might explain it all. But on the way I understand it is that uh, understanding understanding oneself is the greatest mystery of life, right? It's the thing we never understand. I always write about trying to understand other people, and uh, that's a challenge in itself. Understanding oneself is probably beyond uh, one scope. But, you know, I really get drawn to the stories, and then I don't really think much about it. The one thing I do get is a bit tunnel vision on things. And um, I tend to be somebody who just, if I'm really excited about something, just kind of mono focuses on that and thinks about it and loses sight of other things. And so usually I end up in these places almost because kind of, I was just focused, not at the end point, I was focused, okay, well, I got to get here. And then that led me here. And then suddenly that led me there. And, and, and then the next thing I know, I'm I'm on the skiff with the giant squid hunter and we're going through the chute and all these, I, he, I said, where are we going? And he, you know, he points, he says right through there. And I look in front of us, it was dark. That was the other thing. Apparently you could only hunt for uh, giant squid. They rise in the water column. So you have to go at night. So we went at night during the cyclone to find the uh, giant squid. Of and he course. says, where, I, said, where, I said, where are we going? And he, he looks, points ahead and there's, I can see these, like almost these walls in front of me. I suddenly realized that we're going through the shoot of rocks and I take the flashlight and I put it in front of me. There's about, about a 20 foot wall wave behind in front of our skiff. And I look behind us. There's another 20 foot wave and we're just at the bottom of this trowel sliding back. And he kind of looks at me with this kind of mad zeal. And he says, you won't find this in, in New York or Manhattan, will you mate? And at that point I did wonder what the hell I was doing. And if my squid hunter had all his faculties and somebody said, that's where you're going to end up. I never would have gone. So I'm always just kind of focused on the small little points. And, and the next thing you know, you're just kind of in the middle of things. Um, you know, the, I would say also it's what makes things fun. I mean, I, I live a, an incredibly boring life. I mean, I, I write, I read, I have a lovely family, but you know, my excitement is, you know, chasing my kids around and, you know, I'm not a rock climber and I don't, you know, do these things. And so, these stories kind of give me something that I think I would never have. And um, that's kind of nice. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of great. And I, and I think that's part of the curiosity factor. But but I don't logically think about going to these places or doing them because if I did, I, I'm basically a scaredy cat and I never would. I just don't really think about it. And then I end up there. And, and in that case, it's usually okay. <laughs> yeah. Naivety is bliss in those cases. And I remember that's one of the things when I first read your book, Lost City of Z, and I was reading an interview with you, and you did say kind of just that, I would never do this on my own. This isn't me or this isn't my personality, except for the fact that I really like this story, and I'm going to go point to point to point. I'm going to end up in the middle of the story, but if you told me, hey, go into the middle of the Amazon and have fun tromping around looking for the city, 
if you knew you'd end up there, you probably wouldn't do it. And I kind of want to touch on that then the, with The Lost City of Z. And that was your first book, a fantastic book. If you guys haven't read it, highly recommend it. Can you give people a little bit of the background on this story? And also, again, how did you come up with the idea of, I'm going to find myself in the middle of the Amazon. I'm going to look for this city that you know hundreds of people have looked for in the past and not been able to find, and people have died doing it and all this stuff. But here you are, a writer, going to look for it and, and having success. This story um, grew out of another story I had done for The New Yorker about the world's greatest Sherlock Holmes scholar who was found mysteriously garroted in his apartment. And um, all these Sherlockians and Conan Doyle specialists took up the case, which they saw as the greatest real mystery ever and, and tried to solve it. And in the course of, of researching that story, I read a, a ton about Conan Doyle and I came across a reference that um, Percy Harrison Fawcett, uh, this Victorian Edwardian explorer, had been part of the inspiration for The Lost World and in particular a character in The Lost World. And I thought, well, I never heard of him. So I looked it up in, um, in one of these old historical databases, just out of curiosity. And, and up came these crazy stories, these banner headlines from the New York Times about, you know, explorer disappears, you know, in the Amazon, you know, with his, with his son, you know, missing for one year. A movie star searches for Percy Fawcett in the lost city of sea, disappears, never seen. Um, and it was just that, there had been this story that had just kind of once captivated the world that had been totally forgotten and, and, and buried eventually by history. And so I began to research him and I discovered that he was really Percy Harrison Fawcett was uh, the last of the kind of great territorial, you know, Victorian Edwardian explorers who would go off into these blank spots on the map, you know, basically a, a machete and a divine sense of purpose. And um, he had, had mapped uh, much of the interior of the Amazon and then eventually developed what he believed was evidence that there was a lost city there, which he called the City of Z or Z, as I discovered when I was on book tour in England. I always said just the City of Z. <laughs> and, and then eventually in 1925 set out to find it with his son and, 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 and his son's best friend, and they disappeared and they were never seen again. And for decades, people would search for them, uh, trying to find evidence of what happened to Fawcett or to find the city of Z and they would disappear or be killed as well. And the last expedition at the time when I was looking into it had gone just a few years earlier. Now I had gone, my memory is always bad, but I think 2005. And I think in several years earlier, not too many, there had been a big Brazilian expedition that had gone and they were kidnapped by a tribe uh, in the region where Fawcett. And so originally when I began that story, I thought, well, well, this is such an incredible piece of history and how could I tell it? And I thought, well, maybe I'll just try to uh, track that last expedition and what happened to them. And so I started to do research and then eventually I went to um, England and I tracked down Fawcett's granddaughter and uh, I had that kind of wonderful moment that, you know, doesn't happen that often, but as a reporter is a little like finding the, your own little city, a lost city, which is, she said, well, do you really want to know what happened to my grandfather? And I said, well, sure. And she took me in this back room and I described this in the book where she had this, old chest and she opened it up and inside were these books and they were covered with dust and the bindings were breaking apart and they were held together with ribbons. And I said, well, what are they? She said, well, those are my grandfather's uh, uh, secret diaries and log books. And she let me go through them. And they, they really held these enormous clues, both to Fawcett's life. They also contained the route that he had never divulged about where he had really gone. And it was at that point where I decided to kind of where, you know, something happened where I said, well, 
if everybody went the wrong way, what if I tried to go the right way? What might happen? And so that began the kind of uh, decision for me to go in, go into the jungle and try to see, uh, even though, as we've discussed, I, I am not an explorer and I'm, I'm pudgy and I'm overweight and I'm out of shape and, and, uh, to try to, to try to do this thing. Well, at that point, I mean, you're seeing things that no one else has really seen and, and it's almost like a clue to a, an age old mystery. You, you kind of have to go at that point, right? I mean, she was forcing you to go take the story. It, it, you know, the story, you know, had the quality of, the kind of the lost world, right? It had the quality of an old Ryder Haggard novel, right? Where somebody shows you the key to the map and you got to go. And so it felt that way. And of course, I didn't really think about the danger. I thought, oh my God, I got this map. I got this, I've got coordinates. I've got coordinates. And I went, I remember I went to tell my lovely wife, you know, I said, look, I, I got these coordinates. I, I had, you know, up to that point, I'd just been, you know, I, there was no intention of me to go to the jungle. And I said, well, I'm going to do this. She said, well, she kind of said, she said, well, has anyone else done this? I said, oh, yeah, don't worry, lots of people. And she said, well, what happened to them? And then I kind of paused and I was like, well, they kind of all disappeared or died. But don't worry about that. I've got the coordinates. <laughs> so there you have it. David has the map. And if you guys want to figure out and find out what happens after he got the map and learn all about his trip into the Amazon, the incredible things he saw, what he found out about Fawcett, the conclusions that he was able to come to, and just some incredible stories about his time in the Amazon. You're going to have to tune into part two. He also gives us a sneak peek into what his new book will be about that he is currently writing. So if you're interested in that, you want to hear more about David's story and his track in the Amazon, as well as his new book topic, which is really, really interesting, something I had not heard about before, but I'm now very, very intrigued about make sure to check out part two of my interview with David. You can get that by going to extrapackofpeans.com slash pods, or of course, you can find that on iTunes as well or Stitcher or however you listen to it. Also, I want to ask you guys two quick favors. One, we have the survey that is still running, extrapackofpeanuts.com slash survey. It'll take you less than five minutes. The feedback is invaluable to us, and we will be giving away a $50 Amazon gift card to one lucky person who fills that out. So don't forget to leave your email address on the survey so we can contact you if you are the winner. And two, very, very important, today is the day, if you're listening to this live, Wednesday, November 5th, that I am going to be asking everyone I know to please subscribe to the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast on iTunes. Whether you listen to it on iTunes or not, it would really benefit us if you went to iTunes and subscribed. We are trying to hit the top 100 podcasts overall list on iTunes, and it's very important that people subscribe over a small period of time. So if you're listening to this Wednesday, November 5th, or Thursday, November 6th, even Friday, November 7th, that would be awesome if you could please take a minute and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes so that hopefully we can hit the top 100 overall podcast in America. We're talking with the big boys like NPR, Freakonomics, things like that. We want to see the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast up there as well. So thank you in advance if you guys do that. Thank you if you tell friends and family or anyone that you know to help us out. That would be really great. Really, really appreciate the support. And until tomorrow, happy free travels. 